the reason Alton has thrived not only currently but throughout even before when this was probably not part of the United States, it was an outpost. It's because of the river. It's transportation. It's recreation. It is the lifeblood of this community. The Mississippi River is known by many names. Old Man River, the Big Muddy, the Gathering of Waters. It is the bloodline of our nation, running through its center, transporting food and other materials, and providing fertile land for our farmers. It has helped to spread art, culture, and music. Jazz from New Orleans and the blues from Memphis came up the Mississippi and spread to the East and the West. It has inspired literature, like Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn. And for some, it served as a path to freedom for those escaping the shackles of slavery. It's the reason why so many of the towns and cities people call home exist at all, including Alton, Illinois. And while how we view and use the river today has changed over time, it has always been and continues to be the heart of this community. So join me as we look at what this mighty river means to Alton, both what it gives, and as we'll see in part two, what it takes. I'm Stephanie. Welcome to Alltown USA. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge how big a task it is to take on this river and to try to cover its meaning, its history, and its importance. In fact, it's somewhat impossible, even in an extended two-part episode. I am very aware that there is a lot that I won't be able to cover, that there are aspects of the river and stories about life on the river that won't get mentioned here. That doesn't mean that they aren't important, but maybe this will inspire you to learn more on your own. Either way, I hope these two episodes will provide you with a foundation on understanding why this river is important, and some of the issues that the millions of Americans who live, work, and farm along its banks are facing. So let's get started. First, some quick facts. The Mississippi River starts in northern Minnesota at Lake Itasca and ends 2,320 miles south in the Gulf of Mexico. Named by the Native Americans who lived along it, Mississippi means Great River, and it lives up to its name. The Mississippi and Missouri River system is the fourth largest river in the world, and it has the world's fourth largest watershed, covering 1.2 million square miles. Its fertile valleys have created the nutrient-rich soil that feeds our nation's farmlands. Many large cities such as Minneapolis, St. Louis, Memphis, and New Orleans formed along its banks as it became a major navigation system for transporting agricultural products, coal, iron and steel, and much more. Each year, approximately 175 million tons of freight are transported on the Upper Mississippi, and the largest tonnage port district in the Western Hemisphere is the Port of South Louisiana, which covers 54 miles of the Mississippi River and serves as the biggest gateway for U.S. exports and imports. And according to the Environmental Protection Agency, more than 50 cities rely on the Mississippi for daily water supply. But what's so significant about the Mississippi and its relationship to Alton? One important aspect is Alton's unique location, which is right at the convergence of the Mississippi and two other major rivers, the Illinois to the north and the Missouri to the south. It's the coming together of these three rivers that helped put Alton on the map and made it a major river trading town as far back as the early 1800s. 
I sat down with Charlie Deutsch, an environmental stewardship manager for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and asked him about what is so significant about Alton's location. This area is a confluence of rivers, and um, you know, Mississippi is a great river, as, as is the Missouri and the Illinois, but to be in a location where they all come together um, is pretty unique. And, you know, I can think of that in various ways, like wildlife really depend on that confluence area, and, and it, it changes, you know, how they migrate and where they go and, and, and that sort of thing. And then again, you know, going back into the 1800s from a commerce standpoint, people came to these confluences and that's why uh, cities like Alton and, and St. Louis and others kind of uh, welled up in, in the location that they are because people would use this as kind of an intersection of, of travel. Many groups and organizations also recognize the unique coming together of these three major rivers but possibly none more than the Great Rivers and Routes Tourism Bureau, a destination marketing organization that serves Alton and many of its surrounding communities. I sat down with Brett Stewar, the president and CEO, who echoed Charlie's thoughts on why this area is so special. One of the key things this bureau has been really working on uh, is the meeting of the Great Rivers National Scenic Byway, but we have some of the best assets um, in the entire Midwest when it comes to federal lands and some of the things that we have to offer. So you've got the the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers that runs the Audubon Center um, and the National Great Rivers Museum. You've got Two Rivers National Wildlife Refuge, which is running Gilbert Lake and Swan Lake and their visitor center up in Brussels. Um, and then you've got the um, Illinois Department of Natural Resources, which is putting on Pierre Marquette State Park and a few other places um, throughout the, the region. So if you look at state and federal attractions, uh, especially celebrating the river, we are extremely blessed. Um, we also have more river ferries, um, four or five of them that continuously operate here, creating a unique experience. We'll say this over and over again, as well as the towboat captains and everyone else that we run into, but we have the most scenic stretch of the entire Great River Road, from Minnesota to New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, it is a, um, a phenomenal place that you don't find river, road, bluff, all paralleled for each other for 30 plus miles, uh, built in with the amenities that we have as well. It's a wonderful place that's unlike any others. In our area, it's one of the few places where we've got kind of a, a natural, large-scale natural system still there. You know, we have a lot of uh, natural land out there, a lot of uh, forest out there, prairie, wetland, that are still somewhat intact that people can go through and, and see, recreate, provides aesthetic value to folks. Um, people that fish and hunt, it's one of the largest pieces of acreage where you can get out there and do that and, and, and see Mother Nature and really be a part of it. So, um, you know, within the interior of Illinois and Missouri, there's not a lot of that available to people, especially when you're talking about public lands. And that was Robert Cosgriff, a forester for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. As he and Brett mentioned, the coming together of these three rivers has produced an amazing natural environment. And what's even more special is this unique environment has created a perfect stopping ground for the approximately 330 species of birds that use the Mississippi River as a migratory flyway, most famously the American bald eagle. Hundreds of them find their way back here each winter to nest and feed along the river. The Audubon Center at Riverlands is located just across the river from Alton and has over 8.5 miles of trails and viewing platforms, perfect for visiting these different species of birds. And here is Brad Wynn, superintendent at the Lewis and Clark State Historic Site. 
Well, you know, the rivers have been drawing people to this region for, for hundreds and you could argue, if not thousands of years. The first true inhabitants to this region were the wildlife. You know, the birds have used the river as a flyway for all of those years, as long as there's been birds and the fish and, every, and animals. I mean, people before there were people have used the river. Here again is Brett. You know, the area is uh, filled with a lot of rich uh, history, a lot of rare finds, and just a culture you don't find anywhere else, you know. So the meeting of the Great Rivers here with the Illinois, Missouri, and uh, Mississippi Rivers coming together creates a unique uh, advantage for us, a unique story. Uh, it's steeped in history. So let's take a step back and talk about this area's earliest settlers and discover how the river played a key role in the expansion of our country to the west. Here again is Brad. And the early inhabitants, the early American Indian nations that came to this region, they chose this location because the river was the crossroads of cultures. You know, the largest North American civilization to exist in North America prior to the European arrival was here on the river. It was in Cahokia. But the Cahokia Mounds, this pre-Columbian Indian civilization, grew up because in part of its connection to the river. And it was the cultural and religious mecca of the time period. In other words, the religion, perhaps the religion of the sun, the cultural influence that that mounds or those mounds, in, you know, that they spread from this region. The Cahokia Mounds are located near the river, just south of Alton in Collinsville, Illinois. This Native American city existed around 1050 to 1350 CE, and as Brad mentioned, was the largest, most sophisticated Native civilization north of Mexico. It also helped to develop other advanced societies across the United States, well before European settlers arrived. Because of their location on the confluence of the Mississippi, Missouri, and Illinois rivers, they were able to trade with communities to the north in the Great Lakes and to the south on the Gulf Coast. While no one knows exactly what caused the site to become abandoned, scholars suggest it might have been due to environmental factors, such as deforestation, overhunting, and flooding. River has always been. It's been the passage west to the Missouri. It's been the passage east on the Ohio. It's the passage north and south on the Mississippi. So what better way to have this, as I mentioned, crossroads of culture, this collision of culture, all these thousands of people that came together. The Europeans were the later rivals to this region. The American Indians figured it out a long time ago. And how did they get to this region when the Europeans arrived? Of course, they came down the river. Um, so we've been closely tied to that river since before man ever was here and certainly never since. As Brad mentioned, the American Indians have been using the river and its tributaries for farming, hunting, and trading for centuries. So it should come as no shock that the European settlers quickly saw the importance of the Mississippi and wanted to take advantage of it in terms of trade, exploration, and expansion. Well, you want to set some stuff down and walk around the museum? Or you tell sure. I met with Brad at the Lewis and Clark Historic Site, where he gave me a tour and provided me with a rundown on what our nation looked like before the Lewis and Clark expedition and just why that expedition was so important. Our map here shows, this is called the Aerosmith map. It was drawn in 1802, and it gives Lewis and Clark probably the best information about what they're going to find in North America. Yeah. We're right here at the confluence. This was the west coast of the United States in 1803. Illinois was as far west as the United States stretched. And that brings us to President Jefferson and his desire to find a trade route from the Atlantic to the Pacific. By this point, Jefferson knew how important the Missouri and Mississippi rivers were to trade and navigation, and he was hoping they would lead a navigable route to the western coast. But that exploration could only be done if the United States owned the land west of the Mississippi. So we bought it from the French in what is known as the Louisiana Purchase. 
So what was Louisiana? You know, when we bought Louisiana, we knew, as far as the United States was concerned, Jefferson wanted to purchase the Mississippi River. So as we're expanding on the west side of the Appalachian Mountains, all the rivers, of course, flow into the Mississippi River. So as a nation, if we're going to expand into this region, not necessarily looking to go across the river, but if we're going to expand, traffic has to be able to move freely up and down the river. And the Mississippi is an extremely important part of that. And what that meant for us as a nation, if we held what they call the Northwest Passage, our fledgling little country of just, what, 20 years or less old would have one of the most prosperous trade routes in the world because we could control that river route. And so Jefferson in particular wants to know if that river is there. And this makes way for one of the most famous and important expeditions in our nation's history. While its main purpose was to find this practical trade route, it also had a scientific and economic purpose. Jefferson wanted Lewis and Clark to study plant and animal life, geography, and to establish trade with Native American tribes. So on May 14, 1804, Meriwether Lewis, William Clark, and 43 men departed camp about five miles south of Alton to begin their journey west. They returned in the fall of 1806, and while they were unable to find a northwest passage across the U.S., their 8,000-mile expedition produced valuable maps and other geographical information and they were able to initiate peaceful relations with a number of Native American tribes. Here again is Brad, and why he sees this expedition as so significant and meaningful. One of the things that I think is unique about this expedition is it's, it's one of our first truly, for lack of a better word, American things, right? Up until this point, almost every member of this expedition was either born after the Revolution or were born right at the start of the American Revolution. So you've got all these founding fathers who have this history of colonialism as well as the, you know, the, the new nation, but here is a truly American experience. It represents who we can become as a nation because these are not larger-than-life individuals like Jefferson or Washington or Adams or Franklin. For the most part, with the exception of individuals like Lewis and Clark, if I were to ask people who remember who they remember from Lewis and Clark, they probably couldn't. But you've got 43 individuals who represent the broad spectrum of the United States from you know, New England, to the middle part of the country, to the southern part of what was the United States. You've got French, you've got American Indian, you've got all these people, you've got an African American. You couldn't do a better job telling the full story of who we were as a country at that time, who bound together at some point to accomplish this amazing feat to travel several thousand miles all the way to the Pacific Ocean to do this with very little difficulty other than what they found in the terrain. In other words, they cooperated with each other. I I'm always impressed at how well these men overcame such amazing obstacles. It, it's a story that can be told from American history's perspective. I mean, there's so many disciplines. It's such a great interdisciplinary story. And it's inspiring. Thanks to the Louisiana Purchase and the Lewis and Clark Expedition, the West was open, and trade along the Mississippi and its tributaries was growing. And with it, came advancements on how he traveled and traded on the river. So think about the rivers represent prior to the highways. How did people for a lot longer than we've been driving vehicles get around anywhere? They got around by river. So this river has been that major thoroughfare. We figured out a way to move up and down it either by canoe or walking it. And then when steam power came along, we figured out and think about what's so amazing about Alton is how it's changed. Think about how much history's changed and how Alton's had to change along with us. There's great pictures of downtown Alton and downtown St. Louis with steamboats in every inch, square inch of property along the riverfront um, that represents commerce and movement. You might remember from our first episode how riverboat captains back in the early to mid-1800s 
were fairly wealthy, and a lot of them stationed themselves here in Alton because of its location on the river. But none of this movement up and down the river could have happened without support. A major player in making the river more navigable is the United States Army Corps of Engineers. I'll admit I had a very limited understanding of what the Army Corps actually does, so I was beyond grateful to be able to speak with Charlie and Robert, who provided me with a much better understanding of all they do, leaving me with a great amount of respect for the organization. Here again is Robert, a forester for the Corps. Uh, the Army Corps Engineers has been around uh, since the early 1800s when it first came into existence. Its primary focus at that time was navigation. It's moved into things with flood control, um, with levees and dams. Um, it does things with the, the Clean Water Act with uh, regulators and 404 permits. Um, we're in the natural resource management field since we are a land management agency. Um, we're responsible for managing the natural resources just like any other federal agency. Um, there's a lot of other things. I mean, we got, we got a center for, of excellence for archaeology. Um, we do a lot of remedial uh, lands cleanup. So there's a lot of different things that the Army Corps Engineers does. So it's not just an engineering organization like uh, most people have a middle Im image of is we do engineering. So there's a lot of things that the Corps does. The federal government began playing an active role in eliminating problematic spots for navigation as far back as the early 19th century. They did this by creating channels along the upper Mississippi with the help of Robert E. Lee. Here again is Charlie, an environmental stewardship manager for the Corps, on what the Corps' role is specifically in relation to the Mississippi River. The Corps, back as far back as Robert E. Lee, uh, started uh, managing the river and putting structures and that sort of thing in the river. And so, um, you know, kind of moved forward, that evolved into the lock and dam system in the, in the 1930s. Um, that's when Congress authorized a nine-foot navigation channel, and it led to the, the 29 locks and dams on the upper Mississippi River. So that's a big part. Part of our mission is that navigation aspect. I wanted to know about the lock and dam system, why it's necessary and how they work. Here again is Charlie. The Mississippi River is, is a pretty shallow river. I mean, a lot of times you look out there and you see all that water and, and think it's got to be really deep. But pre-lock and dams, I think the average depth was only about three feet, um, which means average. So in some areas it was a lot deeper, in some areas a lot shallower, but it, it wasn't dependable um, as a navigation uh, corridor. So to have that more stable uh, system, um, essentially they built the dams to hold the water back and create a staircase of water uh, for, for boats to be able to go up and, down, uh, up and down the river system. Alton is home to the Melvin Price Lock and Dam, one of the largest and newest locks and dams on the Mississippi. And because of its size, it's able to move barges through at a much quicker pace. But Charlie made one helpful distinction in regards to the locks and dams. The one thing I'd say about the locks and dams too, especially uh, here in 2019 with the flooding that we're having, that's kind of a misnomer and that folks don't uh, understand is that these dams are here only for navigational purposes. Um, when we go into flood conditions where the, you know, the flow really starts increasing, the lock and dam really doesn't have the ability to manage or control the flow the way a lot of people think of a dam. And here, uh, once the water hits a certain elevation, we raise all the gates and just let the water go through. And then once it gets a little bit higher than that, it starts going over the spillway. The Corps did start to get involved with flood management, however, specifically with levees. Here again is Charlie. The federal government decided that, you know, probably because of pressure from uh, constituents and people that lived in their communities that, you know, that they should step in and, and help protect people and protect farms and protect homes and that sort of thing. And so, you know, and I think we always have the sense that 
um, we can outthink Mother Nature. And, and so, you know, the different uh, legislative processes started, and, and, and so the Corps got tapped to do um, uh, some levee management and, and uh, floodplain management. And so um, it, it's a unique setup because we don't, the Corps doesn't own or manage all the levees directly. Um, you know, we, there's a lot of levee districts that, that do that. So the way it was set up was that these levee districts would, would do the day-to-day ownership and management, but the federal government would, would uh, provide some assistance and oversight and guidelines on how they should be constructed and, and uh, to what kind of standard and, and uh, to have more of that overarching view of a system. And here is Robert. 1890s is when there was a big push for building levees, and the Corps got kind of pulled into doing that as well. Um, a lot of it was constructing levees. Um, now there's a program that's called uh, PL8499, which is kind of, it has two, two different flavors. One is, is basically emergency response. So you'll see a lot of Corps people running around with red shirts on around here, and they're pretty much out there looking and, and looking at the levees and determining whether there's a safety risk. Um, so they're identifying that the levees are intact. Um, is there any kind of sand boils, any kind of sloughing on the levees taking place that need to be concerned? Because the primary focus there is, do we need to evacuate? Do we need to be able to get in here and get uh, emergency resources, such as sandbags and other things, put in those areas to reinforce those levees? That's one part of it. From the other part is basically going through and uh, providing guidelines on like elevation for uh, height of levees, vegetation on levees, making sure that they make they meet a certain standard. Um, and part of what reason for doing that is that if a levee is breached or damaged, then the federal government has the ability to come in and do some replacement or provide some funding for repairing those those levees. And Robert makes a clear distinction about what a levee's actual purpose is. Levees aren't there to eliminate flood risk. So what they're there though is to provide the critical time, provide early warning for people in order to evacuate. Um, so it's, they're basically there for emergency um, to protect communities long enough for them to, to get out. So uh, for the most part, levees, you know, the, the floodwaters don't get above them or don't breach them. So we've kind of relied upon that for quite a few years. But now we're getting to the unfortunate situation where a lot of times those levees just can't handle the water levels that are there. And, and they've, they've delayed and provided that early warning it's just that people need to take you know, heed to that and, and react. So the original purpose of a levee was not to necessarily prevent flooding in a community, but rather to hold water back long enough to help people evacuate. But as Robert mentioned, we have come to rely on them for the former, resulting in us making them bigger to prevent breaches, which can cause issues for others downstream. Here again is Robert. Start talking about what we're calling levee wars. So you got these different, uh, different levee districts that are building their levees up to a certain height, and the guys across the river, you know, their, their levees aren't that tall. So where's the water going to go once it reaches a certain level? Well, if you're in Illinois and you build your levee, you know, 18 feet, and the Missouri folks have it at 16 feet, well, the water's going to go to Missouri. Um, so that's, that's issues that, that have to be addressed, and, and something that's definitely around the corner that the Corps is going to be involved in. So, unfortunately. <laughs> and, and, you know, tough decisions got to be made there. So, you know, you're talking about communities. You're talking about large acreage of farmland with, with farmhouses and stuff like that. So it's, it's not an easy decision. It's not an easy, easy business to be in. So. But unfortunately, you know, this is the hand we're dealt. So this is, this is what we're dealing with. We're not dealing with, you know, river elevations that, that are going to permit us to kind of ignore it. So it's something that we've, we've got to look to the future and, and plan for.
but it's something that you know with the, the large number of floods that's been occurring something's got to give uh, you know infrastructure right now we're maxed out on what our infrastructure can can handle so a lot of it you know it's not that the infrastructure is degraded it's just that it wasn't meant to handle the flood events that we keep seeing so and unfortunately that's a situation that many who live along the mississippi are faced with and at what appears to be an increasing rate flooding is becoming more common and regardless of why that might be happening it's forcing farmers, home and business owners, city officials, and others to figure out how to deal with and bounce back from these destructive events. And that's what we'll explore in part two, what impact this most recent flood in particular has had on the area, both economically and environmentally, and the toll it has on the individuals and communities affected most. This episode of All Town USA was written, edited, and produced by me, Stephanie Young. Theme music by Will and Janet Buchanan, with additional music by Miles Moore and Darren Pierce. Special thanks to Robert Cosgriff, Charlie Deutsch, Brett Stawar, Mayor Brant Walker, and Brad Wynn.